Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 355 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Today's episode is brought to you by the Unstuck Group. I love Tony Morgan's work, and they at the Unstuck Group have got a one-day masterclass about the key shifts churches need to make because of coronavirus. So you can get a free copy of Lesson 1 by going to the unstuck group forward slash carry. So just the unstuck group slash carry gets you a free session from their masterclass and serve HQ's online software subscription tools for churches. You should check them out at servehq.church. Get a free, no obligation, 14-day trial account. Staying connected with your church is more important than ever. Well, I'm so excited about today's guest. John Eldridge is on the podcast. And this, you know, what we get to do, you, you got to be honest, it's pretty amazing. Like, I remember sitting in a crowd with 10,000 other people listening to John Eldridge for the first time. And to think that we'd be able to connect and have a meaningful a really deep conversation, which we're going to bring to you today, is pretty cool. And uh, we get to talk about living at an unsustainable pace, something he and I are both, oh, well, quite familiar with. And we have a conversation about that and so many other things on this uh, podcast. So John Eldridge is a best-selling author, a counselor, and a teacher. He is also president of Ransomed Heart, a ministry devoted to helping people discover the heart of God and their own hearts in God's love and learn to live in the kingdom. He and his wife, Stacy, who's also written some amazing books, live near Colorado Springs, Colorado. And it's so funny because uh, one of the things I loved about this conversation, again, this was one that we did months ago before the crisis hit and we're bringing to you now, was I, I just kind of always assumed that, you know, John was like in the mountains hiking and, you know, he's like, no, he's a driven leader just like you and me. <laughs> And so it's fun to kind of poke behind the scenes and uh, learn more about people's stories and their lives. So, man, are you feeling a little bit overwhelmed right now by the rapid changes and decisions that need to be made as a ministry leader? So my team at Connexus just wrapped up another strategic planning session with Tony Morgan at the Unstuck Group. And uh, we sought to clarify where we're going in this season, how we're going to get there. And I honestly cannot recommend Tony highly enough. We have used them again and again when I was lead pastor. Now that I am founding pastor, my successor is using him. Why? Because they have a practical, proven approach that actually works. And that's what we do with our partners. We bring you people that I personally believe in. So if you want to get a taste, the Unstuck Group is hosting an exclusive one-day masterclass on July 30th on key shifts churches need to make because of coronavirus. It's $99.00. You'll walk away with action steps and clarity around what needs to change to thrive in a post-pandemic world. My listeners get free access to Lesson 1 from the Masterclass Guidebook. So you can download your copy and get it exclusively at theunstuckgroup.com forward slash carry. That's just theunstuckgroup.com forward slash carry. And speaking of partners we believe in, have you checked out ServeHQ yet? If you haven't heard of them, they offer a couple of industry standard services that you should definitely check out, Trained Up and Huddle Up. These are the tools that are used to equip and engage your church no matter where your church is at. So 
How do you communicate with people? One of the things that's bothering me these days is there are algorithms filtering out all of your messages. So it's really hard to actually congeal a group online. Well, what if you could go direct? So that's what ServeHQ does through Trained Up and Huddle Up. Uh, it's a mass messaging through video and video emails, uh, text messages. Basically, there's even a chat feature that allows you to stay in direct contact with your people without worrying about inappropriate private communications. And it's like your own private social platform for your church members and volunteers. It's not controlled by an algorithm. So they launched a brand new feature called follow-ups that's included in all accounts with both trained up and huddle up. And this feature can automate messaging, training, and follow-up task assignment for every follow-up workflow in your church. Follow-ups is simple to use. It's a system that allows you to create a time-delayed sequence of actions or tasks, so you don't have to be doing it in real time. Maybe you could even use it on your vacation. It allows you to send drip emails or text messages from HuddleUp, automatically enroll users in courses on a schedule and trained up, or automatically assign follow-up tasks to staff and volunteers to complete manually. So, you want more? Check out ServeHQ at servehq.church. You can get a free, no obligation, 14-day trial account, servehq.church. Well, without further ado, uh, I'm going to get into this really life-giving conversation with John Eldridge. And then at the end of the podcast, in the What I'm Thinking About segment, I'm going to talk to you about, well, some things church leaders are really thinking about their own personal health at this time. So my conversation with best-selling author, and someone who's deeply impacted my life, John Eldridge. John, this is a real privilege. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, likewise, Carrie. It's great to see you uh, by video and talk to you over over the over the miles here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Colorado Springs to Toronto or north of Toronto, which you would enjoy probably more than Toronto. So, yeah, we're out in the country, middle of nowhere. Uh, oh, I, have, I love that. Yeah, yeah, you would. I've really appreciated your voice. We were sharing ahead of time how much it's impacted me. And we're not going to camp long on it, but I think most people probably first heard of you when Wild at Heart came out, which was how long ago now, John? Uh, 20 years. That's yeah. incredible. I think the, I read right? it. And then I saw you at Catalyst 2004 back in the day. Yes. Yes, yeah. right. That was uh, at what was then the Gwinnett Center, and it was really amazing. And we were talking a little bit about that. The book is not one of those books that came out, had a flash in the pan, and disappeared. It continues to do well around the world. 30 languages, I think you said, it's been translated yes. into, and it sells yeah. you know, probably hundreds of thousands of copies every year. Why do you think that message has resonated so deeply for so long, John? Well, we, we came into the fatherhood crisis, at, I think, at the moment that it was really blowing up, you know, that um, people were wrestling with, uh, how do you raise boys? What does it mean to be a man in the world? What, does God have some guidance for us? So we, it was a moment uh, 20 years ago of real, I would call it gender confusion. Hmm. Um, and, and since then, we had no idea what was coming. I thought, as a therapist, I was already looking at the train wreck. I thought, you know, my clients and all of that, I thought, I, I know what's happening. 20 years later, it's, it is gender collapse. Hmm. I, I, mean, I mean, gender isn't even a thing anymore. It's a spectrum upon, you know, across which people move and change and that sort of thing. And so there is this heartache in the world to understand, who am I? 
what am I wired to be? What, what did God mean when, when he created male and female there in Genesis 1? So I, it, was a, it was a timely message in a critical moment, and it's healed, a, it's healed a lot of lives, a lot of marriages. It's brought a lot of dads back to their kids. It's been a very beautiful story. Well, because it's, uh, I know, I know the book continues to do well, but most of the listeners to this podcast are in their twenties and thirties, so they may have missed it the first time around. Can you give us a little recap? And I'd love to know whether you think the message is more relevant today or whether you would reshape it in any way, given the way the whole gender identity thing has changed over the last two decades. Yeah, I think, um, to get down to the core of the message, I would say that the search Every little boy has one question, and the question is, do I have what it takes? Uh, do I have a strength? Do I have a competency? Do I have a gifting? Do, when I am called upon, can I come through? That is the masculine question. And oh, what was intended to happen was that through dads and uncles and coaches and over time, that boy comes into a settled answer, yes, you do. You have what it takes. So then he is able to move with courage and with kindness and strength into his world. What happens, however, in most of our upbringing, some, I, I was raised in an alcoholic home. Most, um, most actually of your audience, uh, more than 50% of your audience then, if that's uh, your age group, grew up without a dad. Mm. It's that high, John, really? Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Man. Or yeah. Or in single parent homes, dad right. may have been in, in the same city or he may have visited, but the question doesn't get answered well. Mm. And, when a, and when a man does not know who he is, when he's not grounded in love and validation, he needs love and he needs validation, then he will take that in all kinds of wrong directions. You know, he, he'll give it to his career and he'll sacrifice literally his health. Yeah. For a career, you know, he'll blow up a marriage because he keeps looking to other women to answer that question. Tell me who I am. Tell me I'm loved. Tell me I have what it takes. So that's the core message uh, of Wild at Heart is that the healing of the masculine soul and coming into a genuine sense of strength uh, that, that enables you to love well and, and live courageously in the world. It's interesting um, because what I hear in in that message, and I read the book when it came out and heard you speak and, you know, studied it in small group, the whole deal, uh, as with some of your other work. But I think one of the stereotypes is, you know, to be a man, for those of you who are watching on YouTube, you've got, pardon my ignorance, but is that an elk or a deer? It's an or what is it? What is it? It's an impala. It's an impala. Yeah, and not Africa. a Chevy. Okay. So that's like a yeah. real animal. Yeah. Yeah. And over Ed. there is the caribou, which you would recognize oh, yeah. from your neck of the woods. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, <laughs> you're an outdoorsman. I mean, you go hunting, you go hiking, the whole deal. You got your Patagonia vest on. Um, but And some of it is that, but a lot of it actually deals with our hearts and the wounds of our heart, right? It's just, your yeah, message yeah. is an interesting juxtaposition. Yeah, yeah, because um, there is a craving in every man for adventure, but it's just mm. that the adventure looks different for every man. I, I thought it was fascinating that Wall Street Journal marketed itself for a while as adventures in capitalism. 
because they they were tapping into the entrepreneurial. That is a big adventure. Start a company, oh, yeah. take a risk. Tell you know, start it. a new start a new career. Right? Yeah. Okay. So every little boy is wired for that. Every man's wired for adventure. It just looks different. Every mm-hmm. man's wired for courage. This isn't about being a lumberjack and drinking right. motor oil. You know, that this is this is um, a, a core desire to live courageously. And then how that plays out. I mean, my goodness, uh, getting in a relationship takes enormous amounts of courage. Mm-hmm. You know, pursuing your graduate degree takes massive amounts of courage. So yes, the masculinity can express itself very, very uniquely in each man's life. Yeah. Which I think is a, is a really needed message because often you get into ax throwing or whatever you need to be. And there's your, you know, manly yeah. thing. I would be more the yeah. entrepreneur than, see, I don't even know that's an impala. But I remember the question when the way you phrased it, it was so simple, so clear, really hit me at an opportune time in my 30s. And then my wife, the question for every woman you and your wife argue is which? Let's just touch on that before we jump into your new work. Yeah, it's different. It's different than a search for validation. It Mm. it is. It's a search for intimacy. Will I be Mm. chosen? Will I be delighted in? Am I seen? Does anyone see me, the real me? Uh, will anyone fight for me? And, and what's, what's fascinating is that they've done business studies on this, and women can survive career setbacks that absolutely destroy men because they're not looking to their career for validation. Isn't mm. that fascinating? That is fascinating. You know, but a man will attach that need you know, to his career or his status or his income or, you know, his athletic prowess. But on the other hand, the, the study that I'm referring to, um, it was fascinating. They asked leading executives, women executives, and they, uh, the majority of them said, I would trade my success for a wonderful relationship. Hmm. Women are relationally wired. They are yeah. experts at it. And, yeah. and they're brilliant at it, which is why it's really important to have them in companies, by the way, because they can help you create a a company culture that that is far more caring uh, towards human individuals mm. um, versus the bottom line. But yeah, they're very, very different. And every little girl has that question and every little girl get, carries a wound. And then if she doesn't get that, this is fascinating, Carrie. Yeah, yeah. The number, the number one predictor of teenage pr- uh, pregnancy, girls, teenage girls getting pregnant is the presence of a loving father in her life. Wow. If she's loved, and she knows it, she will not look to boys to answer that question. Hmm. It's kind of like that old John Mayer song, right? That came out around the same time as Wild at Heart, Daughters. Uh, I, I always think there's profound truth in that. Well, this is so helpful. And maybe this is a reintroduction to some of our younger listeners to John's work. The book is called Wild at Heart. And if people want to tap into that, uh, I know you, you and your wife published a number of books around that time. So what are the top two or three resources that people could look yep. into. So while at heart for men, captivating is the book for mm-hmm. women. And then uh, if you get on our web, you can just Google wild at heart and you'll find us and there's uh, videos and films. And we actually still do conferences around it. Our, our wild at heart and captivating events became so popular globally. We had to go to a lottery system. Wow. So that gives you an idea of the ache of the mm-hmm. need. Right. People, people are really looking for um, deep healing of their soul and clarity 
on who they are. And, and so we continue to just sell those events out. That's incredible. Okay. Well, this is, this has been so refreshing and a good reminder to me of how pivotal some of these ideas and concepts have been in the healing of my own marriage and uh, my own journey as, as a Christ follower, as a person, and then also as a leader. So really just want to thank you so much for that. I'm very, that I'm very honored. To- so, so yeah. grateful. Um, I want to know, John, how are you spending your time these days in Colorado Springs? What are you doing? You're writing? Well, and, you, yeah. yeah, you heard about the lotteries. Um, we we are full tilt over here. We we have a nonprofit called Ransomed Heart. We have 19 employees, and it's conferences, international travel, it's podcasts, filmmaking. It, it, there's a lot of creative people in this shop. And because we love that we're heart people like live from your heart, live from your passions, you know, chase the adventure. But when you get a group of people who are all kind of wired that way, there is a ton going on over here. I have to keep putting the bridle on it and go, (laughs) no, 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 you know, not that film project, not right now. Uh, So my days, my days kind of look like everybody else's days. I I go to work. I lead a team. I I do interviews like this. Mm -hmm. I have to fit my writing into my personal time. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, because yeah. my picture of John Eldridge is always, you're up in the mountains somewhere on a long hike <laughs> with minimal provisions, you know, almost like Bear Grylls yeah. style kind of thing, yeah. which yeah. is great, man versus wild, which is part of your life, yeah. right? You do yes. some of that. Yeah, 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 yeah. In fact, my, my personal dream is that Bear asked me to be on the show. Uh, <laughs> I, <clears throat> but I, I love... I, I love the wilderness. It nourishes my soul. I seek it every time I can get. But I live in a pretty typical city, in a pretty typical neighborhood, and you know, I take out the trash and walk the dogs and come into work and lead a team. Yeah. Uh, how how I, I've got to ask this before we jump in to get your life back, which is a fascinating book and uh, a space that I spend a lot of time thinking about these days. So I want to get there. But how does your unique perspective, like as a leader leading a a not-for-profit company of 20-ish employees, how does that impact the culture you create at work? I'm just curious because we all have a culture. Well, uh, I had to repent of the culture that I created because I am a hard-charging guy. Mm -hmm. I like, let's take the hill, let's live the adventure, let's go, go, go. And I created I created a pretty intense culture here with too much going on. Mm. Um, and, and then we began to see employees not doing well. And they're not employees, they're team members, they're sure. friends. You know, yeah. when you live in that small of a group of people, and, and I realized that I had projected a lot of my lack of personal soul care. Mm. Uh, I'm just one of those people that can endure a lot. Um, and, and can go without and can, I can withstand international travel. I can do multiple events. I can, you know, but it's not good for me hmm. it, it, and it's not good for those who work for me. So we actually, we, we, we had a huge culture reset here in recent years. And, uh, if I could show you the, the living room through my wall here, you'd see a foosball table <sighs> at a ping pong table. And, um, there's, uh, staff lunches and playtime. And it, I just, I personally, I had to learn soul care and the, and I had to do it on behalf of my team to say, we're not going to drive everybody into the ground in order to take the next objective. That's a hard lesson. Um, I, I work with people several decades younger than me for the most part these days. And 
Uh, I've had to be, because I'm an Enneagram 8, I just go. And again, the travel, the schedule, and you know, I got some hacks around it. But I realized that my personal pace is something that, and drive is unique to me. And there has to be a healthy calibration for the team. And I think a lot, and, and, and hey, there are seasons, let's be honest, where it's not healthy, where I'm not healthy, or I'm not this. But uh, it's a good reminder that you, even if I, I try to remind myself of this, that even if I am going extra hard in a season, I cannot expect that level of sustained effort from the team because it's just not fair. Yes, yes. One of the great epiphanies in life for me was the way the way I treat my heart and my soul is the way I will end up treating everyone else's. Mm. And I, I thought that. I'm like, no, that's not true. I, I'm super compassionate towards people. But the thing is, I am projecting a set of expectations. And when they see me work late and work weekends, when they see me getting tons done, you know, mm-hmm. and they're getting email at 9 p.m. and stuff, it projects expectations. Yep. And so I had to, I had almost on behalf of others, sometimes we can't make the choice for ourselves, but on behalf of others, I had to learn a more reasonable uh, way of living and working and creating. I really did. I, I just had to completely recalibrate um, because I care for these folks and, and I care for my wife and I realized that I was asking her, you know, you and I sound very similarly wired. Yeah, I, I, I think we might be. Yeah, yeah. I wish we would live closer because we would probably... <laughs> We'd probably very, hang out and have a good time and commiserate. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> but I projected it on my wife. I wanted her Me to keep too. up the same pace and it, it, it wore her out and that was not kind. So it's been wonderful. This, this last uh, season, and I, I would put that in the, like the last five years here in our in our company, it's just a total recalibration of how we live and love and what we consider to be a reasonable pace for creative people wanting to get a ton of stuff done. Has that been hard for you? Of course. <laughs> of course. Yeah, because I, I, am, um, I am the wild horse. I want to run an open country full tilt. I don't want to be constrained by anything. Uh, so it, it actually requires continual adjustments and continual choices. And, and now, you know, when Stace and I are mapping out the year, the question we're asking is where's the Sabbath, Mm. where's the Sabbath in that schedule? Not, not just once, but quarterly, where's the Sabbath, where, where are we going to catch our breath? So that's been really good. So you can't mean a day then if it's quarterly, are you talking about a week? Are you talking what? Take a week quarterly. Yep. Wow. Yeah, it's funny. My wife and I, I've been doing a weekly Sabbaths. I broke it last weekend because we're in the middle of a launch. And I'm like, I think I sinned, actually. Um, but <laughs> I know that's Old Testament, <laughs> but uh, I broke that. And then my wife is like, let's make July and August this summer a no travel zone. And we're just not going to fly anywhere. You're not going to take any speaking engagements. That was so hard for me. But you're, you're for those who are listening, you're celebrating. I am. I'm raising my hands in the air. That is such a good call. She's such a great wife. I got I to gotta listen. Good for her. Yeah. So on that note, this is a good segue into your new book. You argue that we have, and I'm quoting, we've been sucked into a life nobody's enjoying. And uh, Can you tell us about that and what the premise of Get Your Life Back, uh, which is a great title, by the way, um, your latest book is all about? Yeah, it's a perfect storm. 
right mm-hmm. now. It's it's several things together. It's not one thing. It is the pace of life that most people find themselves living. Because what technology um, did, it, it allowed our capacity to increase like triple X. We can get so much more done. But the problem is, therefore, so much more is required of us. And, and, and then you just have Everyone's got their normal life, like things to navigate. You've got your aging parents. You've got health issues. You know, you've got dreams and finances that you're trying to get in order. And you've got maybe kids or maybe you're single. You're, but the problem is now the pace of life is absolutely nuts. That there's no – nobody remembers free time anymore. Yeah. Like when was, when was goof off time? When was that? Like how did getting bored this? in the summer. Like that was right. awesome. Right. Yeah. Just pure goof off. I have no agenda. I have nothing to be productive about. And no one's able to reach me. Hmm. So you have the pace of life. And then you have the technology. And you have the fact that everyone is way overconnected. You know, we're checking our phones 80 times a day. And we're spending three hours a day using apps on our phones. And so you've got this. We're all wired. We're all wired into the world now. And, and so that technology gives everyone access to you. I mean, you know, you're getting texted at, you know, 11 p.m. And your company expects you to answer now. Like, it, that's just, those are the expectations now. You are 24-7 available. And then the third piece I would add to it is the tsunami of information coming at us. You know, everybody knows about the coronavirus now. Everybody knows about the deaths. Everyone knows about the earthquakes in Turkey and what's happening in Syria. And the human soul was never meant to live like you were you were never meant to be subject to an insane pace of life with no downtime to being overconnected in technology and to being subject to the heartache of the entire world like that perfect storm is wearing everyone out yeah i mean the the term i think years ago decades ago of compassion fatigue surfaced and like every day there's a new issue so today the day we're recording this this will air months later but there was a tornado in nashville so i'm like literally texting my friends to see how they're doing praying for people but a hundred years ago you wouldn't even know that kind of stuff the coronavirus you wouldn't you wouldn't know i mean maybe you read the newspaper you know if you're literate you read the newspaper yeah so you're arguing it's a soul thing like we were not actually designed to handle the information that we are now processing daily? Yeah, clearly. Yeah, I think the human soul is village-sized. I think we were meant to love and care and share the heartache and the losses of a small group of people. Hmm. But when when you are now, we are all subject to every, all, every, all the heartache you just named, and, and then on and on you go. You know, the fires in Australia, I know you're heading yeah. down to Australia 1.9 billion animals have died in the fires in Australia. I mean, that kind of heartbreak, I, it just wrecks me. Yeah. And, and so I think you're right. I think it's empathy overload. I just think it's mm. too much. Um, and so how do we explain the rising anxiety rates, yes. the rising, rising depression rates? Anti-anxiety drugs are the leading pharmaceutical in the world right now. And I, by the way, I believe in drugs. I mm-hmm. think as a therapist, I believe in them 100%. My wife uses antidepressants. If, you're, if your neurochemistry has been, you know, hurt by your genetics or by other things, you know, childhood trauma, those, those drugs can be enormously helpful. Very life-giving. I'm not, 
I'm not condemning them. I'm just saying, what kind of world do we have right now that we need so much medication and, and so many people just seem so overloaded. I just think we're, I think we are all overwhelmed. Cause you've been in, you've been um, practicing as a therapist now for decades. So yeah. again, speak to people who are under 30. I always, I'm thinking a lot these days, John, cause we're doing research in a similar vein. And uh, have you, I don't know whether it's in your book or not, but you heard of Robin Dunbar, Dunbar's number? No. Oh, no. this is fascinating. I've got his book in my library. He's uh, an atheist sociologist who argues exactly what you just said, that the average person really was designed for the size of a village. And he studies medieval villages throughout history and discovers the number to be about 150. So I've got a book coming out next year now at this point, not this year, um, where I talk about exactly that problem, Dunbar's number. Like you were not designed to have 20,000 followers or 2,000 followers or 500 friends. You're about 150. And if you look at historically over the whole period of human history, and Dunbar, who's a sociologist who's alive today and a historian, basically argues that psychologically you're wired to about 150 people. And then what do you yes. do with that? Hence yes. the overwhelm and the anxiety, Right. And so I have a pre-digital memory. You have the blessing of a pre-digital memory where you remember. I mean, earlier today, I don't want to make this about what's happening in my life, but we just disconnected our home phone. And the only reason we have it is in an emergency. We live in the middle of nowhere. It's like, it might be the only way to get out in the event of a fire or something like that. But I just disabled all the inbound stuff because I just can't stand the telemarketers and anybody who really knows how to reach us. It's just one yeah. more channel we were able to close off, but keep open yes. in case of an emergency. Right. But like, yeah. you know, if you're under 30, you don't remember life when you weren't instantly accessible. Mm-hmm. And that's why, like what you just said about Dunbar's numbers is a very kind thing to inform people of. This isn't criticism. This no. isn't, hey, you're, uh, it's kindness to say to those uh, under 30, look, what you think is normal it is actually very brutal on the human soul. Mm. Humanity was never living like this for thousands and thousands of years. For thousands of years, the pace of human life was three miles an hour. Yeah, it was, that's a it great was the, point. It was the pace of walking. Mm. And, and this was one of the things in the Gospels that just blew my mind. And I, I need to give credit to Archibald Hart because mm. years ago he did this study on adrenaline and stress. And he was pointing out in the Gospels, you know, we read these stories, you know, here's a miracle, and then there's a teaching, and then there's a deliverance, and then, he, but, but when it says Jesus went from Jerusalem up to Galilee, we, we think it takes place, you know, with the Not on his finger. private jet, and he was there in minutes. <laughs> Three days walking wow. by foot. Three days by foot walking. And that's the downtime. That's the soul recovery time. That's the time to process Talk about what what just happened. You know, have a meal, rest under a tree, get ready for the next thing. And we have lost all transitional space. There is no transitional space. We go from, you know, one angry phone call into a heartbreaking news report, and then we check our feed, and your soul is like, mercy, <laughs> uncle. <laughs> like, I, I, and this is what happened to me. This is where the book came from. Was it all, everything we're describing happened to me. And, and I got so dried out. I just was, I was cooked. Hmm. I was baked. And, and I just said, I, this isn't the life I want. This is absolute craziness. So that to the degree that I can begin to do some things 
reasonable things. You know, I'm not quitting my job. I'm not moving to the mountains. Uh, you know, reasonable things to get out of the madness. When did that happen for you, John? Yeah, it's, it, it, I was describing the cultural shift in our, in our, in our mm. nonprofit about the same time. So over the last several years, I've been mm. trying to make these small course corrections in my life, small choices, simple as this. Like this morning, I had to discipline myself again because I did the, the, the tornadoes. Um, don't look at your phone first thing in the morning. Mm-hmm. Like I, it just became a habit and I would just reach for my phone, right? It's the first thing you do. Well, then you're in it. You're in the matrix. Like there's the emergency text and there's the email that, oh, I forgot to answer that. And, you know, mm-hmm. like there's no space left to be human. And so what I do is I just simply don't check my phone. I leave it face down on the counter at night. And when I come out in the morning, instead, make a cup of coffee, look out the window, like be human, wow. be kind to your soul. When, so you've been a clinician, a, a practicing therapist now for uh, decades. How yeah, have 30, you seen, how, how, how long? Almost 30 years. Almost yeah. 30 years. So over these three decades, how have you seen the presenting symptoms change? People used to be, it, it's, it's margin. It was Richard mm. Swenson's book, you know, that groundbreaking book. That's it, a good it, book. People, yeah, right? Um. As a young therapist, I could give someone an insight. I could help them unpack something in their story, and they would go think about it. And next time they came in, we would be able to build on the work that we were doing. But now what's happened is people do not have time to think. Mm. It, it's restart every time we sit down because there's no, there's no mental space for people to, to just have, you know, margin or room or free time or whatever you want to call it to just think about their life or, or process things. You know, when I, when I suggest that someone journal, you know, journal those feelings, kind of record that they look at me like, when, (laughs) when am I supposed to do that? You know? Yeah. Yeah. So those are, those are some really, really big differences. Um, how would you say, how would you describe the stressors that people are, you're saying information overload, which really takes on uh, compassion, fatigue, there may be a better name for that. What are some of the other stressors that you're seeing in your practice and in your observations? Well, because um, there, the, uh, profound hopelessness, hmm. uh, the, this you don't understand the suicide rates uh, in your listening audience are off the charts. Um, it's the number one killer of young people yeah. in the West now is is suicide, and that just breaks my heart. That's just devastating news. Um, it, it therefore why? Well, it's hopelessness. It is is that they do not see the opportunity. If you if you to ask people forty years ago, fifty years ago. Um, do you think that your life will be better than your parents? They would have said yes, because with this idea of progress, right? And my goodness, look at, we're just, we're getting better at healthcare and women aren't dying in childbirth and come on, you know, the world is getting better. But nowadays, if you ask uh, young people that question, they will say, no, Hmm. I don't anticipate that my life will be better than my parents. Um, the economic stress, uh, the multiple career changes, you know, the, the typical millennial, for example, will have seven different careers, not jobs, 
careers. Mm-hmm. There's and so it's the instability. Yeah. And 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 then it was the thing you were you were touching on just to come back to community for a moment. I can't wait for your book to come out. I'm very excited about that. Neither can I. I got to uh, figure it out. But thank you. <laughs> um, what we have now is artificial community. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone's community is digital. You know, and like you were saying, is you know, so what that you have a ton of friends on Facebook? It's not real community. It's artificial. You're not face to face with someone. You're not sharing their life. You're 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 not. And so I think it is loneliness. Um, what I would add, disconnected loneliness and the hopelessness is really getting people into this spiral of anxiety and depression um, because they're not. They're connected in the wrong ways. I was about to say they're not connected. Yeah. They're over. They're over connected. We're all over connected. I am way over connected, right? Uh, um, but but it's not face to face, and it's not human to human, and it's not life to life, and that's what we desperately need. You, there was a beautiful uh, uh, Jewish uh, therapist, Irving Yalom. He's he's an incredible writer. He's an existential therapist, uh, and. His mantra was, it's the relationship that heals. It's the relationship that heals. He was trying to help young clinicians understand it's not your knowledge. It's not your expertise, not your PhD. It's the relationship that you are offering someone as you listen to their life. And we don't have that. We don't have the healing because we don't have the relationships. Right? We don't have have time for it. And, And then we're overloaded online. John, you make the argument in your book in one form or another that social media may be destroying our souls. Can you talk a little bit more about social media? And then I want to get into, before we wrap up, I want to get into the reconstruction. What are some things we yeah, can do, exactly, some practices? Because yeah. I think you're reading everyone's mail. Yeah, there is good hope. Well, I just, again, um, so the research shows now, overwhelming research. This isn't even contestable anymore. The, um, the amount of social media you consume and the rising rates of anxiety and depression, and I would also envy, uh, plenty of research on that, um, direct correlation. It's a one-to-one ratio. And so if you want to be well, <laughs> stop doing that to yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the good news, Carrie, is this. When I, when I realized I was really cooked and spun up, I would, just, I would just be so spun up at the end of the day, I realized I'm, this isn't persecution. I'm not in a camp. I I have choices. I actually have volition. I I have I have opportunity to make some changes, not massive ones, maybe, mm. uh, but I can make some changes. And that that began to lead into a series of healing practices, like learning to pause in my day. Very very simple. The opening chapter of the book is the one minute pause. Learning to pause in my day in order to just reset. I realized I never stop. I just go from email to email, right. phone call to phone call, meeting to meeting, boom, 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 boom. You know. So what does that look like? What is a one, what do you do in a one minute pause? Okay. What's really fun about this, I'm going to give a quick shout out. This became so healing. We built an app called the one minute pause that will guide folks. It's free. Oh, cool. It's online. 40,000 people ha- have downloaded it in a couple months, which shows you it's working. Oh, wow. It's really helpful. So here's what I do. The whole point of the pause first is that you do nothing. The soul needs to do nothing sometimes. And so I'm not making my lists and I'm not answering emails in my head and I'm not planning my next, you know, I am getting quiet 
And then the main practice I use the pause for now is the second chapter in the book. And I talk about benevolent detachment because of the information overload, because of the empathy, the empathy fatigue, the compassion fatigue, I have got to let it go somewhere in my day. I have got to practice releasing it. And so I literally, when I pause, I pause, I get quiet. I become aware of my body. I'm like, whoa, I am so tense. Become aware of my breathing. I am breathing so shallow, just short little breaths. You know, I'm already cranked up. Hmm. And this is by 10 in the morning. (laughs) Um, I pause. I come back to myself. And in that pause, I begin to say something like this. I say, Jesus, I give everyone and everything to you. And then I repeat that because I I need to repeat it. I give everyone and everything to you. And as I'm doing it, I am dis I'm 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 disentangling myself from the chaos of my world and the world, the news, the report I just heard. You know, at some point you got to learn to let it go. And, and, And as you do that, it is so marvelous for the soul and they make we're talking 60 seconds carrie yeah like, yeah 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 it, it, this isn't monasticism <laughs> this is this, this is very doable and uh it's become it's become so such a life giver in our in our offices here that every day at 10 and 2 bells ring out throughout the building in the pa system and everybody stops for 60 seconds wow and it's a reset and what's cool is after doing this, having instituted this, then people start sending me the brain research and that kind of thing. And the brain research shows it's literally a reset. You come out of that with greater concentration and greater focus. That's a great tip. How, how do you, with a compassion fatigue, because I think one not necessarily healthy thing is to get just totally detached and you almost become cynical or indifferent or cold to the suffering in the world. Do you want to comment on that release to Jesus, which theologically yeah. I would align with? How does that yes. not lead you to a place of like total detachment or being cold or indifferent to the suffering in the world or this paralysis of wanting to do something about it, but really being powerless to help? Yes. Um, that's why I call it benevolent. Mm. It, mm. Benevolent, because it's not angry. I'm not cynical. I'm not, sometimes I am, but I'm not. <laughs> I'm not detaching because I, I, I don't care world, you know, um, I am choosing first off to be human again. Mm. And I'm saying I can't carry that. There is absolutely nothing I can do right now about the fires in Australia. I will pray and I do pray for that, but I have to let it go. I can't carry that. And, you know, sleep disorders are a huge, huge issue yeah. because everybody's so wired up. I would do this at bedtime. This is what Stacy and I do as part mm. of our bedtime prayers now is, to, is that we give the world to you, God. We give the world to you. And then we name some things. We give our kids to you. Mm. And, and we, we give our team to you. And we give the release of this new book to you. And, we, you know, you got to let it go. And the thing is, it doesn't turn you into a cynical person. It actually, you are more refreshed and therefore able to care. It's the burnout people who can't yeah. seem to care anymore. The, the people who are refreshed and thriving are very caring people. How do you choose what to care about? Because I would imagine that there are some causes you support. There are some charities you give to. There are some mm-hmm. times you pick up the phone and you're like, actually, I got a really good friend in Australia. Like I did text a handful of people this morning in Nashville just to pull the current example mm-hmm. to see that they're okay. 
And, you know, I may donate to something because I have lots of friends in the city. Um, but how do you, how do you use that filter to determine, oh yeah, we're going to, we're going to act now, but not act in this case. Yep. Um, concentric circles, right? Mm. Start with those, you start with those close to you. It's Dunbar's model and I didn't even know It is his model. You're right. Yeah, you have to start with what's close to you because that's where you can make the biggest difference. You know, I, I can take a meal to my neighbor. I can actually do something, right? I can help that gal change her flat tire. I can do that. Like I, I can intervene there. And then you start going out and cons- And when it gets to be like super global, you know, I there's very little I can do. And that's someone you know? else's. It's funny because that's in the book too. It's like you got your five, you got your 15. And yeah. then you've got a slightly larger number. And beyond that, it just it just doesn't work. But there is someone else for whom that affected person is in their five or their 15. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. Any other tips? What about um, talk to the young leader who's got three kids, busy. They're kind of on the edge financially. They're still moving up in the world. They don't have as much freedom as perhaps you or I do at this stage in our life as driven as we are. And they're like, John, I hear you, man, but I just can't slow down. Like I'm, yeah. I'm not even the CEO. I'm not the senior pastor. I'm not the manager. I'm just, here I am. Tell me how to slow down. Cause I'm living on the yep. crazy train. All right. I'm going to tell you to download the one minute pause okay. on the app store because you get that on your phone. It's going to be a lifesaver because everybody can do 60 seconds. You can do that. And it's a start. It's a yeah. beginning place. I'm going to give another practice, a bunch of practices in the book, but I'm going to give one that, that, that you might find surprising. I would say um, there is beauty all around you and you need to begin to notice and receive it. So you get in your car, the frost on the windshield, mm. the patterns of the frost are so extraordinarily beautiful. The way sunlight comes through the window in the morning in your kitchen, the yeah. sound of songbirds, like, um, God knew the human soul was going to be traumatized by this broken world. I think everyone is traumatized. And and beauty heals trauma. Beauty heals the soul. And so I have begun to become an addict for beauty. Play beautiful music in your home. Play it in your car on your commute. Like find things of beauty that are beautiful to you Mm. and fill your world with it. Like, what is it for you? Is it wood? Is it flowers? Is it music? Like fabric that the beauty of human faces is infinite that um, to let beauty back into your life and into your soul, because it will heal you in ways that you didn't even know you needed healing. That's a, that's a good counsel. And is it you? I think it's you in this book. I was reading it this week. I think it was from you that said, we live way too much of our life indoors. Is that your point? It's just Yeah, the World yeah. Health Organization released that report that we spend 93% of our life indoors now. 93%. And that's not and healthy. That, oh, well, it's not for all. It literally isn't healthy, you know, because the human soul <laughs> needs nature and you need fresh air and you literally need dirt because um, the microbiomes and all that, you know, improve human immune systems. In fact, m- there's a lot of good research coming out that the immune uh, deficiency crisis that we're in and all the autoimmune uh, disorders are the, are because of, we've been detached from nature wow. because we, we live in plastic worlds now. So again, I, you know, I know I, I know I sound like the nature guy and I know I sound like a monk, 
I live a normal life. I get home late. I have work to do when I get home. Yeah. I, it, my life is crazy, but I make it a priority to get outside every day. Yes. And that's sometimes that just means a lap around the building. I literally just walk outside the office building and I just take laps. <laughs> I just walk around in the parking lot, you know, uh, but I can feel the weather and I can feel the wind. And also it's also for the mind to get out of your work environment for just a moment. It's like a five minute walk. It is a reset. It, it, it is a reset and you do feel less stressed and it, the cortisol begins to drop uh, in your body. So get outside if only for a few minutes every day. John, this is uh, this could be a three hour conversation. It's been so, so rich. I really appreciate it. And I would I would echo that. Actually, that's one of the reasons you and I were talking. I took up winter running and I was just trying to put this together in my mind. Why do I hate exercise in the winter? In the summer, I cycle. And it's not even, well, the exercise is great, but I just love being outside in the sun and on the road and the wind. And since I've started winter running and it's like 20 degrees Fahrenheit, I love it. Don't love running, love being outside and I need to do the exercise. I agree. And it's good. There's the other, yeah, it's good for my soul. And usually the leader in me is like, oh, I get some pretty good ideas when I'm doing that. That's uh, that's a little carrot, the bonus, but um, John, uh, man, oh man, anything else you want to share to encourage leaders as we wrap up? No one, no one and nothing in the world is going to tell you to take care of your soul, mm-hmm. but Carrie and I are mm. like, you want to be a more loving person, care for your soul. You want to be more creative, care for your soul. You, you want to make a difference in the world, care for your soul. Everything depends on the health of your soul. And the mad world is not going to encourage you to do these simple things, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Care for your soul. That is a great word. So uh, I am excited for people to get the app. I'm going to download the app. And I would love for you to tell people where they can find you online and track with you, John. You know, if you Google John Eldridge, uh, you'll find me quick, uh, wherever you get your podcasts, we have a regular podcast. So you could search for John Eldridge there and, um, you find our organization called ransomed heart. You can find our live events and the things that we do. Join the waiting list, the lottery system. (laughs) (laughs) John, I have a feeling this won't be the last time. Just thank you so much. What a gift this has been to me and what a gift you've been to millions. So thank you for sharing with us today. Yeah. Thanks, Carrie. I've enjoyed it immensely. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. If you want more, we've got show notes for you, including transcripts at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 355. And I want to thank our partners on this episode too. The Unstuck Group, you can download your free copy of Lesson 1 from their one-day masterclass about key shifts churches need to make because of the coronavirus at theunstuckgroup.com forward slash carry. And check out ServeHQ's free 14-day trial no obligation at servehq.church. And they have online software subscription tools for churches right there for you. So uh, next episode, I am so excited to bring you Darius Daniels. Darius and I, oh, we talked about a lot of different things. And uh, he's somebody who has really got a voice worth listening to. We talk about the ups and downs of communication, leadership, learning lessons the hard way, and how to live and lead with greater relational intelligence. Here is an excerpt from that conversation. There's this experience in the African-American church that is rich 
And so what we wanted to do was to take some of those same values and figure out what does it mean to reinvent them for another generation who needs church done differently? You know, maybe to the global church, some of the things that we did would not be considered trendsetting. But in the context of the tradition I was hewed out of, we had to be highly experimental and innovative. I'm sure other people in other contexts can relate to this, I guess, in some way. Sometimes a break from an approach isn't just seen as a break from an approach. It's, it's all, at times it's seen as a betrayal of our identity. Like, oh, mm-hmm. this isn't good enough for you anymore. This is the way we do it. And so we had to work through a lot of that. So that's our next episode. And in the meantime, what am I thinking about? Well, I am thinking about what you are thinking about. And in the same way that Henry Cloud and I had a good conversation about mental health, and then, you know, we brought you this one with John Eldridge today. Here are some things I'm sensing leaders are thinking about this summer. Number one, I don't know how much longer I can do this. I've talked to a few leaders who are like, you know, I just didn't sign up for this. I did not sign up for opening and closing and you know, online ministry and uh, the craziness and the chaos of what 2020 has become. Uh, I interviewed Levi and Jenny Lusco recently, and you'll hear that conversation soon if you haven't already about the coronavirus. And I love Levi's metaphor. He just said, look, it's like we knew how to run this race and we're running the race and we get to the end of our marathon and then we think we're finished and somebody hands us a bike. And then they tell us, oh yeah, later you've got to swim. And you're like, "I, I could do the run. I just can't do this like, biking and swimming. And it's so true. You know, you thought you signed up for a marathon, but it's actually a triathlon. And uh, I know a lot of leaders are like, I don't know how much longer I can do this. So a little hint for you, never quit on a bad day. And there've been a lot of bad days lately. And then take a break because leaders who never take a break end up breaking. And I said more on that on another segment, like your time off can't really fix problems with your time on, but sometimes you just need to rest And maybe that's what you need to do. Second thing leaders are thinking right now is I'm just too tired to address the things I know I'm supposed to fix. Uh, I got a text this morning from a good friend who said his pastor is just so sick of everything he wants to go. Everything just has to go back to normal. And I'm hearing that every single day. And you know what? There are things you need to fix, right? Like there have been declining church attendance trends for a long, long time. And maybe online, you know, you're not optimally staffed for it, but Denial is not a great strategy. Um, Irrelevance and ineffectiveness are arguably worse. And, you know, the reality is fatigue is a terrible decision maker. When you're tired, you just don't make good decisions. So I would try to get some rest this summer and then say, okay, what am I supposed to do? How am I going to find the energy to address the things I know how to fix? And then finally, and this could be a sign you're burning out. Uh, maybe your thoughts and emotions are total yo-yo. I have that at times where I'm not particularly healthy. You know, you're up one minute, down the next, and everything in between. I get it. That's just something to really pay attention to. And maybe you want to see a counselor. Maybe you want to see your doctor. Maybe you want to slow down your pace a little bit. But those are three things leaders are thinking this summer. I don't know how much longer I can do this. I'm too tired to address the things I know I'm supposed to fix. And my thoughts and emotions are total yo-yo. So, If you're interested in getting some more information like this that can help you in your leadership journey, there is a little daily dose I send out. And the easiest way to subscribe is just text my name, Carrie, to 33777. We will sign you up for the daily email that you get. Join 70,000 other leaders who every day hear a little bit 
of leadership advice and strategy from me. Uh, won't clog up your inbox. We are very careful. Uh, we do not share your email with other people. You'll only hear from me. And you can do that by texting Carrie, C-A-R-E-Y, to 33777. Well, we're back next time with a fresh episode. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope this helped. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.